My kingdom is a kingdom of people who are well aware of their sinfulness, yet they're also equally aware that that sinfulness has been dealt with and has been taken away forever. He says, well, nobody can fast. Your, your question is, why, why are we not fasting? Well, let me answer your question. Because nobody fasts at a wedding. The bridegroom is here. And Jesus, notice carefully, he says, not only should they not fast when the bridegroom is here, he says they cannot fast. So what's Jesus getting at here? This analogy of the bridegroom and the bridegroom is here. So he said earlier that fasting is a matter of Christian conscience. It's a matter of Christian freedom. The, the New Testament believer, the New Covenant believer, is never commanded to fast. It's not required of us to fast. Nevertheless, there may be times in our spiritual journey, and probably there, there should be times in all of our spiritual journey, in which we feel compelled to fast. Maybe a, a desperate need is pressing upon us. Maybe we feel overwhelmed with a sense of sinfulness. Maybe we feel some type of a desperate need. Maybe we feel just what our culture is pressing down upon us now. And from a cultural standpoint, we just feel like that we just need to be fasting right now. Maybe that's the case, but that is a matter of Christian liberty. But what Jesus is saying here is that fasting, because it is fasting is always associated with lack, with need, with desperation, with a, a loss, with a crying out to God to say, I am in desperate need of something. Jesus is saying, the bridegroom is here. The wedding guests not only should not fast, they cannot fast. Why can the wedding guests not fast when the bridegroom is here? Because the wedding guests can deprive themselves of food but they cannot fast in such an environment of euphoric joy. And that's what fasting is. Fasting is not just depriving yourself of food. Fasting is doing so accompanied together with this sense of lack, need, desperation. And Jesus's point is the bridegroom is here. And it is not characteristic of my people to be characterized as a people of need and lack and want because we are new creations in Christ. The kingdom of God is not characterized by brokenness over sin. Listen carefully to this because this is easy to get wrong if you only listen to part of what I say. The kingdom of, not, of God is not characterized by brokenness over sin, but by a brokenness over sin that has been atoned for, giving way to kingdom joy. That is the characterization of the new covenant, of the new kingdom in Christ, is a brokenness over sin, but that brokenness over sin is a, is a brokenness that knows the sin has been taken away. It has been atoned for. And so that knowledge, not only the knowledge of my sinfulness, but the knowledge that my sinfulness has been taken away, it's been atoned for, that gives way to a certain type of kingdom joy. And that's what Jesus is saying. My kingdom is characterized by that, not by your old grumpy fasting. 
You're all grumpy fasting that sees no joy, no happiness. You're walking around all disheveled faces and everything. Jesus didn't come to call people into this state of morose fasting. Again, there's times where God's people, it's appropriate to fast. But that is not the characterization of the kingdom of God. We are called into a kingdom of joyfulness. As Paul will say to the Romans, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. Or as he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10, this paradox that he mentions, always sorrowful, yet continually rejoicing. Always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So there is this truth, this reality of the sinfulness from which we've been delivered. But there's also the reality of the deliverance from that. And Jesus says, because of that, the wedding guests can't fast. Put yourself into that picture. You're at a wedding. So you're here at this wedding, and, and you're not just a guest, but you are a friend of the bridegroom. So you'd be one of the bridegroom's party. Groomsmen, I guess they call them that. Now, weddings in Jesus' day were not like weddings today. I know weddings today, most of them, many of them go so far overboard. Ours did. I mean, so much money is spent on weddings. In Jesus' day, however, a wedding was not a 20-minute ceremony followed by a two-hour reception. In Jesus' day, a wedding was seven days. Unless, of course, it was a second marriage. Maybe a widower or a widow was remarrying after the death of a spouse. In that case, it was reduced to three days. But normally, a wedding was seven days. Seven days of festivity, seven days of drinking and eating and dancing and celebrating. And Jesus says, you're going to come into that context as a party to the bridegroom? And you're going to say, when, when we come to you with the feast and the food and the wine, you're going to say, no, I'm fasting. What an insult. What an out of place Picture, just like new wine and old wineskins, just like new patch on old garment. What an unfitting picture for someone to be at a wedding feast, a seven-day wedding feast, and say, oh, it just happened to hit me on my fasting week. That looks really good, smells really good. I hope you enjoy it. I'm abstaining because you know what? I'm making God happy. And Jesus says, the bridegroom is here. And so the friends of the bridegroom, not only is it not appropriate to fast, you can't because the fact that the groom is here, the bridegroom is here, means that this is a joyful time. And even if you denied yourself of the food, you still can't deny yourself of the joy of the wedding feast. That's Jesus's point. So Jesus says, my, my kingdom is not a kingdom that's characterized by just downheartedness, moroseness over sinfulness. My kingdom is a kingdom of people who are well aware of their sinfulness, yet they're also equally aware that that sinfulness has been dealt with and it's been taken away forever. And that lends itself to this type of kingdom joy that is the characterization of my people. The central characterization, the central description, according to this story here, of the new covenant is that the fast is over. From Luke's gospel, think with me of chapter 24. You remember chapter 24? Jesus 
has been dead now three days. The disciples are on the way to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, and here comes the risen Christ beside them, and he comes up beside them. They don't recognize him. Jesus talks with them. He opens their minds to the scriptures. He says to them from the scriptures, he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? And they're beginning to get this. They're beginning to piece it together. They get to where they're going. They ask Jesus to stay with us. Stay with us, Jesus. And they compel Jesus to stay with them. And then Jesus stays with them. And then we find that phrase that in Luke chapter 24 where they says that he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, that's interesting. He was made known to them in the breaking of bread. What does that mean? I think perhaps one thing it means is that they were fasting. Because remember, their master's gone. Yeah, they've heard stories. The women told them some stories about the tomb being empty, the stone rolled away, but we, we couldn't find evidence of that. We're not sure we believe that. And so imagine their state of mind. We don't have to imagine it. They tell us what they're... They were so downhearted. So I think it's very likely that they were fasting. And then Jesus makes himself known to them as he breaks their fast. Now, that might be a a bridge a little bit too far. If it is, that's okay. Nevertheless, the point is still the same. Jesus is saying to them, your fast is over. I'm here. I'm back. I told you, you would have sorrow. I told you I would be torn from you. And I told you that your sorrow will be turned to joy. For I would come back. Now your fast is over. Now, if it's not clear there, I think it becomes a little bit clearer in the following episode, a few verses later, when then the disciples rush back to Jerusalem. They come to the upper room and they tell their news. We saw Jesus on the road. And they say to him, we saw him too. And then Jesus is there. And do you remember that account in Luke chapter 24? While Jesus is there in the upper room, while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Now, I think that perhaps they too were fasting. I mean, what more appropriate time to fast? The one whom we thought was going to deliver Israel turned out to be a fraud, turned out to be a sham. We believed him. We believed his words. We thought he was different. What better time to fast? And could it be that now the risen Savior comes and says to them, your fast is over because I'm back. Give me some fish. Let's break this fast right now. The fast is over. Jesus says the bridegroom will be torn away, but he will return. John chapter 16, your sorrow will turn to joy. You will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So that's one of the things that I want to see in Luke's gospel. But here's here's really where I want to kind of get to in Luke's gospel. When Luke relates this same account, the same instance, he adds one detail at the very end from Luke chapter 5 and verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. So Jesus tells the same parable. You can't put new wine. Nobody puts new wine in old wine skins. Nobody does that. Everybody knows that it bursts the wine skins, and then you lose both the wine and the skins. And then Jesus finishes that by saying, 
and no one who drinks the old wants the new. Now, I don't know about you, but for a long time, I thought that that was kind of backwards, sort of counterintuitive. Why would Jesus say that? Why wouldn't he say, kind of like the turning the water into the wine, that the new wine is better? Sort of like the parable that we just looked at. The new wine is the one, the wine that represents Jesus. Why would Jesus not say everybody who's had the new doesn't want to go back to the old? He says the opposite. Everyone who has the old doesn't want the new. What's Jesus' meaning? What Jesus is saying is, to those who have come to him to say, why are you not fasting? We're fasting twice a week. You need to get with the program. If you want to be respected, you need to get with the program. Jesus is saying, those who invest themselves in the righteousness of their own works become increasingly averse to grace. For those who take of the old wine, those who avail themselves, those who invest themselves into the works of their hands as means of acquiring God's favor. The more you do that, the more distasteful grace becomes to you. That's what Jesus is saying. The more you partake of that old wine, the more sour the new wine seems to become to you. Because you say in your heart, no, 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 I prefer the old. I prefer the old because the old is good. So many places that show us this in Scripture, but the one I thought of was the parable of the prodigal son. We remember the parable of the prodigal son. After the son comes home, he's welcomed in. They're having the party inside. Chapter 15 and verse 29 of Luke's gospel, we read this. But the other, the older brother answered his father. The father says, come on in with us. Come on into the party. He answered his father, no. Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You see his answer? Come on into the party. No. Nope because I've worked all these years. I'm not coming into that party of grace because I've worked all these years. I'm not giving up what I've worked for to come in and partake of a party of grace. Because those who drink of the old wine, those who invest themselves in righteousness before God based upon how well you keep the rules, the more you invest in that, the more distasteful, the new wine of grace becomes to you. It's kind of like the, remember the parable that Jesus tells of the treasure, the pearl of great price? You find this pearl of great price in the field and you go, you sell everything you've got to buy that field because that, that treasure is so valuable. And of course, that's a parable teaching us of the treasure of grace that's found in our Lord. But it's kind of like if you maybe retell that parable this way, that there was a, once a man who found in a field a treasure, a pearl of great price. And he went to sell everything that he had to buy that field. And when the owner of the field told him the price, the man said, that's too high. What's the price? The price is everything you've got. I've got quite a lot. Because I've worked a long time. And I've saved up quite a lot. You're telling me that field is going to cost everything? I think that might just be a price too high. 
the disciples of John and the Pharisees are the rich young ruler to whom Jesus says, the price of my kingdom is everything you've got. And their answer is, we've got a lot because we've been investing for a long time in our twice weekly fasts, in our public prayers, in our giving of alms to the poor, in our attending of church every week, in our giving to the church, in our doing of this good deed, of our being nice to people that we don't like. We've really invested ourselves a long time. And so Jesus, you're telling me this is going to cost everything I've got. Well, that's really a lot. And I'm not sure that the treasure in that field is really worth all that I've got. That's what Luke is saying here. Everyone who invests himself in the old, there will come a point in which you say, the new's not worth it. I like my old. I prefer my old. There was once a man who found a pearl of immeasurable value in a field. And he went and sold all he had to buy that field because that treasure was so valuable to him. And he came back after buying that field and he had second thoughts. And he said to himself, you know, I just really like the lay of this field. Doesn't this field just, doesn't it just lay really nice? Just see how that hill just sort of rolls up onto the other and everything is nice and smooth. The grass is so, why tear up this field by making a great big old hole in the middle of it? I've got the treasure. The treasure's there. Why don't we just leave it there and not disturb all this nice field? How ludicrous. But is that not the same thing as letting the signs that point us to God become an end unto themselves? May God protect our hearts from such foolishness as this. May God protect us from the foolishness that overcame the people of Hezekiah's day when they had taken Moses' staff with the bronze serpent and made a god out of that. And Hezekiah had to destroy it. May God protect us from that which overcame the apostle John when he sees the angels and falls down before the angels. May God protect us from such foolishness. 